The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 10, 23-11-1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of of many, that they may be saved." Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but I got some of that iced coffee today and my heart is pounding. I'm ready to go. I think I might talk a little fast today. So if that's the case, um, just, you know, shout slow down or something and I'll I'll try to pace myself. Uh, My name is Sam Schmidt. I am the pastoral uh, church planting intern here at Sacred City Church. Man, my heart is pounding. I'm I'm telling you, uh, I'm the church planning intern here at Sacred City Church. I, I have been uh, kind of working through this internship over the last year and a half, testing my calling into to pastoral ministry and seeing if God is calling me and planning a church. Um, and so being up here on stage, getting the opportunity to, to learn how to preach God's word and to, to speak to you guys is a great joy and great pr- privilege for me this morning. Um, so thank you for, for that. Um, you may notice I'm a little light on the face today. I... I uh, I went for a summer, summer shave, so um, I look a little bit like a kid. So ignore, um, ignore that if that, that's a hindrance to you. But I got one announcement before we jump into our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and that is that after today's service, we will be having a, a picnic uh, down at Junkie Park, which is uh, near the, the Lou Jacks car dealership area back, I think it's on 35th Street. Um, so come join us. We're going to provide burgers and hot dogs. Uh, we got uh, a couple of adult beverages ready for you, some lemonade, water. Uh, we just ask that you bring a side or a dessert to share, and we'll have a good time playing some sand volleyball, um, you know, wiffle ball, hanging out. It'll be a good time. So p- please feel free to join us uh, for that immediately after the service. So um, with that, I'm going to pray. We're going to jump in, and we're going to see what God has for us here in this chapter um, today. Lord, we We are so delighted to enter into your house. We're so thankful uh, that you've called us back to yourself this week, that we could uh, come here um, as a a family and learn and celebrate and rejoice in your glory. Um, We thank you for what you've done in Christ and in the way that we we get to sing about him and the way we get to to hear about him in God's word. And we just ask that you would uh, fill our hearts with amazement and wonder this morning. And as we approach your word, would you soften our hearts to hear what you have for us? Would you 
Um, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the goodness and the glorious of your name? And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I like to read. Um, and and th- there's one book that I read recently, earlier this year, that was just uh, stood above all the other books that I've read this year. It's a book called Death by Living. It's by uh, N.D. Wright, I think. No, that's not. N.D. Wilson. Uh, really great book. I was actually reading it. We were at a Desiring God's Men conference up in Minneapolis. And I started reading it, and I just down. So I'd be, I'd be walking through the skywalks and I'd have my Kindle and just be like looking up, looking down. I couldn't get my nose out of this book. It was so good. You know, in every conversation that I had, you know, the guys in my hotel room, they got so sick of me because every conversation came back to this book and how awesome it was, you know, like I was all about it. And I'm wondering if, if you have had an experience like that, you've, you've read a book, seen a movie that was just awesome, Right. Just awesome. And, and what happens when you read a book or see a movie that's just incredible? Like, you know, like the, the plot is awesome. There's twists and turns. It's very intriguing. The character development is outstanding. It feels like you actually know the characters in the book. Like, and what do you do with that? You just put the book or movie back up on the shelf and walk away like it didn't happen? Like, no. If, it's, if you really think it's awesome, you're going to share, share it with somebody. You're going to tell somebody about the book. You're going to tell them about the, the movie. And... Uh, and then, and then you'll see, like, maybe, maybe it's so good enough that, uh, that you go and buy a collector's edition. You know, you get the box set, you get the, the director's cut. And little by little, this movie or this book or whatever it is starts making its way into your life. Like, you, you, it's not just the collector's edition stuff. Now you've got the plates and the silverware and the, the cups. And you've got the t-shirt. You've got the necklace. You've got one of those giant stickers to put on your wall. And before you know it, this just escalates and escalates and escalates. And before you know it, you're, you're standing in line at the movie theater for a midnight showing dressed as Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, it just, it's just so awesome. You want to display it. You want to show people. You want to tell people about it. And so that's just how it works. Um. And, and today, in our passage, we have a very similar situation. Um, Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church, and they're going through some tough times here. Like our, our series is called Following Jesus in a Jacked-Up Church, and the Corinthians are definitely a jacked-up church. They've got a lot, of, a lot of issues to deal with. And to aid them through these issues, Paul has spent the last three chapters, and, and in our text today, verses 25 through 30, helping them walk through their immediate situation um, facing food sacrifices and idol worship. He's been giving them some practical solutions as, and, as well as guiding principles that could translate to other areas of life. And so today he rearticulates the principles that he's previously laid out, but he clearly reveals to us the ultimate purpose, the purpose, the principle that... Uh, that surpasses all other principles, the principle that point, the principle that all other principles point to. And this, this principle, this ultimate principle has endless applications. It, it's able to reach into every aspect of life, get into every nook and cranny. And that principle is found in verse 31 of chapter 10. So if you want to open up your Bibles um, with me and look at verse 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is our ultimate principle. Do all things to the glory of God. That's it. Great. But uh, what does it mean? 
What does it mean to do all things to the glory of God? That's, that's one of those uh, phrases that's been tossed around a lot in Christian community. Like it's, it's one of those buzzwords. And when you sit down and ask somebody what it actually means to do all things to the glory of God, people can rarely tell you. Like it's, you know, it's kind of a, a foggy concept. And so to help us with that, to help us with our, insur- our insurity about what it looks like to do all things to the glory of God, Paul is going to give us a few things um, to, to show us if, if we're on track for doing all things to the glory of God. So the first thing when, when figuring out if we're doing all things to the glory of God would be, it would be helpful to, to determine what the definition of glory is. What does it mean? Well, my definition for glory is a public display of awesomeness. Glory is a public display of awesomeness. And this isn't just a church word. This isn't, this isn't something that we just use here inside the, the walls of the church. But this is something that you hear all around. Um, you hear them at a wedding. Man, you should have seen the bride in all her glory. Or a hunter says, man, that buck was glorious. Or you go on your family vacation and you're watching the sunset over the Grand Canyon. Man, that was a glorious view. And, and what they mean is that it's a display of awesomeness. It's, it's a display of excellence, of beauty, of, of wisdom, of strength. It just means it's a, a public display of awesomeness. But there's a problem because this, this definition doesn't transfer very well over to God because this type of glory has some limitations. The bride's glory fades. The next morning, her hair doesn't look quite as pretty as it did on her wedding day. The glory of the buck will decay with its remains. The glory of a created thing is not only limited to a specific arena like beauty or, or uh, wisdom or strength, but it also has an expiration date. Those, those things that were once glorious will lose their glory. It will fade. And so when talking about God's glory, a more appropriate definition is a public display of God's infinite awesomeness. This not only means that God is awesome in every arena, in in beauty, in wisdom, in strength, in excellence, in value. But it means that God's glory does not fade. That his glory goes on and on and on from eternity past into eternity future. And so if, if that's what glory is, if glory is God's public display of infinite awesomeness, that to do all things to God's glory is to point to God's awesomeness by doing awesome things that God would do. I found it helpful to throw the word display into our passage here, that that text. It says, for it to say, to do all things to display the glory of God. So everything that we do should be done to publicly display the, the source of all awesomeness. And this was the design of humans from the start. God created man in his image so that man would naturally display his awesomeness. In fact, everything God created was created to display God's awesomeness. Fish swim to show God's awesomeness. Birds fly to show God's awesomeness. Mountains hold their form to show God's awesomeness. Everything was created to show God's infinite awesomeness. However, there was a snag in there somewhere along the line where our our first parents, Adam and Eve, they ruined our natural um, God-glorifying tendencies. And they did this when they were tempted by sin. They were tempted by um, Satan to eat of a fruit that was uh, prohibited. God said, don't don't eat of this fruit. And and this was more than than just an issue with food. This this wasn't about 
the fruit that they ate. This was a, a, behind it was a promise of that they could be more awesome than God. And they were tempted by this thought of we could be more awesome than God, then we'll make it. But when they tried to be more awesome than, awesome than God, not only did they fail at being awesome, but they were no longer doing what they were designed to do. They were in rebellion against their purpose. It would be like birds who decided to swim or, or fish that decided to fly or oceans that tried to become mountains. It just doesn't work. And the Bible has a name for this kind of rebellion. The Bible calls this sin. And all sin, no matter how big or small, prevents us from displaying God's awesomeness. And an interesting thing happens when, when we fail to display God's awesomeness. Not only do humans lose their purpose, but they also lose their joy and pleasure. Think about a CEO, someone who was made, who was designed to be a businessman. How joyful do you think that person would be if they were flipping burgers down the street? Like, we're talking about a guy who is made for spreadsheets and market analysis and business plans. And here he is dropping fries into a fryer and dealing with adult acne. Like, like where, where's the joy in that? Like, he, he's, not, um, he's not happy. Because he's not doing what, what he was designed to do. And, and it, I would argue that it's not the spreadsheet. It's not the marketing strategies that bring him joy. It's knowing that he's doing what he was made to do. That brings him the greatest sense of joy. And the same is true of all humans. That, that we aren't, when we're not doing what we're designed to do. We're miserable people. And I'm not just talking about an occupation or vocation. I'm talking about our ultimate purpose, which the Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that's the problem. We, we can't, we aren't doing it because of, of sin. Sin keeps us from displaying God's infinite awesomeness and experiencing the deep, deep joy that comes from that. So how do we get back to experiencing God's awesomeness? How do we get back to seeing God's awesomeness? How do we get back to enjoying God's awesomeness? Well, in today's passage, Paul is going to teach us what it looks like for sinful humans to display God's infinite awesomeness. And to put us on the right track, um, he's made five statements that we can turn into some diagnostic questions to assess if we are doing all things to display God's awesomeness. So these questions, they can be applied to everything we do in life. To the way we work, the way we rest, the way we uh, parent, the way we neighbor, the way we think, the way we face struggles, the way we eat, and, and ultimately the way we live. So let's jump in, verse 23. It says, all things are lawful. And he actually says this twice in that, that verse. He says, all things are lawful. But is that true? Are all things really lawful? Like if you got in your car and intentionally drove down the road and ran over a disc golfer, would that be lawful? No, the state of Iowa won't permit that. They'll, they'll chase you down. Not only does that break the law of, of the state, but, but also breaks God's law. You, don't murder. Like, it doesn't work. So, but if you take a look at this, all things are lawful is in quotations here. And what Paul's doing, he's quoting uh, the same phrase that we see back in chapter 6, where he addressed the issue about Christian rights and freedoms. He's explained that not everything's black and white. Not everything's a yes or no. That Christians have freedom to do things that God doesn't specifically condemn. And we also have freedom to do things that God doesn't specifically command. So, 
that, that mentality brings us to the first question, the first diagnostic question. Is this permissible? Is this allowed? Can I do it? Does God speak against it? Does the state law speak against it? Now, if there isn't a law against it, then Christians are free to do it. Christians, um, that, that kind of falls under uh, the freedom of Christians. So they can, they can go about doing it. Not a big deal. If, if the answer is yes, if it's permissible. For example, there's no laws against smoking cigarettes, playing video games, dancing in the club, watching R-rated movies. There's no laws against it. So a Christian can do those things and not break uh, and not be and not fail to display God's awesomeness. However, there are some things that God does say not to do, that God does specifically command. And so, for example, if you're sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, then that wouldn't be displaying God's awesomeness because God specifically says not to do that. If you're being jealous or lying and stealing or disobeying your parents, that would not be displaying God's awesomeness. So that's the first question. Is it permissible? And that brings us to uh, question two, which is also in verse 23. Are, uh, it says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So he's saying here that, that there are things that you can do. Like the Christian can do some things. Lots of things, actually. But he's saying those things that you can do, is it constructive? Is it beneficial? And that's our, our second question. Will this promote good? Is this beneficial? Is this constructive? And there are many things that a Christian can do, but not everything that they can do will always display God's awesomeness. For example, Christians are allowed to have fun with their friends and go out for a night on the town. You know, that could be a beneficial night of building relationships, supporting local businesses, and having a good time with the people that God's put around you. That could be beneficial. But if you uh, have a tendency in those situations to drink too much, to run your mouth, to start some drama, then this, this sort of thing could be not beneficial. Like, this could be a, a place where you are not displaying God's awesomeness. So we've got to ask ourselves, is this beneficial? The third diagnostic question comes from verse 24. It says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, what, what is that called when we seek the good of our neighbor over the good of ourself? That's called love. Love. So ask yourself, is what I'm doing loving? Is it loving for me to be behaving in this way? Am I doing this out of love for someone else, or am I doing this out of love for myself? And back in chapter 8, Paul kind of uh, sits on this for a little while. And he says that love is the primary motivator in the Christian's life. That if you aren't doing, if you aren't behaving out of love, then you're failing to display the awesomeness of God. So let's say that you're, you're really into peanut butter. You really love it. It's good. It's your favorite thing. And it's your turn for Maine at Missional Community. And you think, you know I'll make peanut butter sandwiches. You know, I'm on a budget. Peanut butter sandwich. I'll bring peanut butter sandwiches. But knowing that, that you've got this love, a deep affinity for peanut butter, there's someone else in your missional community who's allergic to peanut butter. Like if they, if they eat peanuts, they, their throat will swell up. They'll turn into a balloon and, you know, like it just won't go well. So is it really loving, knowing that, that someone's allergic in your MC to peanuts, is it really loving to bring peanut butter sandwiches as the only main? No. That's, that's, that's going with your own preferences. That's loving your own self rather than loving your neighbor. So loving your neighbor might look like 
you know, bringing bologna sandwiches instead. I don't know. But what I'm saying is seeking the good of others over ourselves. That's what love looks like. You aren't loving your neighbor well by letting your yard turn into a nature preserve. Like letting the weeds get out of control and like it just looks bad. It's an eyesore. That's not loving your neighbor well. So do your neighbor kindness, mow your yard. On the other side of that, there are things that would pass this question. Is it loving to open doors for strangers? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, you're setting yourself aside. You're taking a minute to open a door. It takes seven, seven seconds to do that. Like, that's nice. Is it nice to work hard on a group project? Is it, or is it loving to work hard on a good project, a group project? Yeah, it is. Work hard to make others look good. Look, like, set them up for success. That's a loving thing to do. But... Um, but let's say what you're doing is permissible, it's beneficial, it's loving. So what's the next question that we can ask ourselves? Like, so let's turn to verse 32. Jump down. Verse 32, it says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And, and further into that, um, Paul says you know, that he's trying to please everyone. So does that mean that that I'm supposed to make everybody happy? Is that my job? Is, am I, what, what does it mean to give no offense? Well, Paul isn't telling us to never say anything hard or offensive. Because the truth is often hard. And the gospel is offensive. Like Jesus, in his ministry, within a matter of weeks probably, was wanted dead. Like his life was offensive to people. But he's not saying that we should conform to the way of life that compromises gospel living. Like he's not telling us that our ultimate goal is to make people happy. He's not telling us to be people pleasers. And a people pleaser is someone who does everything for everybody else because they think it's their job to make people happy. Being a people pleaser, it it might seem like a good thing, a nice way to live, because they're always focused on loving others. But at the core of it, there's something deeply wrong. There's something deeply wrong with this mindset. And it's, it's the motivation for being a people pleaser. Psychologist Dr. Sherry Pagato says that the main motivation of being a people pleaser is fear of rejection. It's fear motivated. So out of this fear, people pleasers, they overcommit themselves. They rarely say no. They don't know how to set boundaries. And they do all of this so that they'll be thought well of by other people. They feel like it's their mission to make everybody happy. They have a hard time speaking truth because they're afraid that it'll be offensive and and it'll be harsh. And then it'll ultimately lead to their rejection. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When, When Paul's talking about pleasing others and not being offensive, he's not motivated by a fear of rejection. He's motivated by a, a... The truth of acceptance. He knows that the gospel brings sinners into the family of God. The gospel welcomes sinners into the family of God. So he's saying that that we should live in a way that represents the gospel well. A, A way that appeals to people. A way that's welcoming and inviting. So that's our fourth diagnostic question. Is this appealing? Is what I'm doing appealing? Are you living in a way that draws people toward you? Or are you living in a way that pushes people away? When, when people look at your attitude, do they see a warm and inviting person or do they see a, a cold and distant person? Would people see someone who is able to have fun and enjoy life 
or they see a Debbie Downer in a buzzkill. Like, guys, this, this fails to display God's awesomeness because God's awesomeness draws people to himself. God's awesomeness is appealing to others. So, is it appealing? And that brings us to our, our last question that we can ask ourselves. And this is in verse 33. Paul, um, Paul's essentially saying that everything I do, I do it so that many will be saved. And so this, this statement forms our last uh, diagnostic question. Is what I'm doing missional? Is this missional? And what does that mean? Missional is one of those buzzwords that we throw around a lot, but, but we don't often know how to put uh, a definition on it. So what's it mean to be missional? Paul shows us what it's like to be missional. He, he shows us that being missional is living life in a way that displays and shares the gospel with the purpose of bringing others to Jesus. With the purpose of bringing others to Jesus. And now there, there are two common mistakes that, Christian makes, that a Christian makes when, when it comes to living missionally. And both of these errors, they fail at displaying God's infinite awesomeness by, by not living in a way that reaches out to unbelievers. So the first error is the way of the Christian hipster. This person's perceived as a spiritual person. Like their friends know that they pray and they're busy on Sunday mornings. But uh, they're not really sure why. Because the the Christian hipster keeps the the whole Jesus thing uh, on the down low. The Christian hipster has a lot of friends from different walks of life. Lots of different worldviews. They're incredibly gracious people. And they're well liked by many. They have a life, uh, they, have, they have a gift that allows them to easily associate with society's minorities and marginalized. They, they can connect well with artists and the, and the defeated and downcast, homosexuals and, and the social rebels. They have a, a great connection with these people and great opportunities to talk about sin and the gospel. But rather than being proactive and engaging their unbelieving friends, they, they take a reactive approach. They say stuff like, well... You know, when my friends are ready to hear about Jesus, they'll come to me. You know, like, if they got a question about Jesus, they'll come to me. And by doing this, a lot of times they dish out good advice more than they dish out good news. Because they aren't sure about how well it will be received. And, and this is the issue that Christian hipsters face. They don't see the urgency... Of sharing the gospel. They don't really believe that people are going to hell. And the gospel is the only thing that will save them. They don't believe it. They don't believe the gospel message is awesome. So they don't share it. Because they're not sharing the gospel. Because they're not speaking the gospel. They're not living. With the purpose of seeing their friends come to know Jesus. And therefore they're failing at displaying the awesomeness of God. The other type of person, the other common mistake is, is the Christian hermit. These people are all about Jesus. They read lots of books. They go to a few worship services a week. They listen to Christian jams in the car. They got Christian t-shirts. They probably got some Christian flag or weird ornament in their yard. Like, they're all about Jesus. And they talk in a way that their neighbors think, you know, they talk and they live in a way where their neighbors think that they're a bunch of nut jobs. Like, these guys are just a bunch of weirdos. And, and so we see that the Christian hermit, they're, they're not really a hermit in the sense that they isolate themselves. 
But they're a hermit in the sense that they isolate themselves with people who are just like them. They don't spend time with people who are different than them. They stay with their, uh, they stay with what's comfortable. They're friends that are Bible-thumping, K-loving junkies. That's, that's who they stick with. And so, to the unbeliever, they also speak like a foreign language. They stay, say weird stuff like, let go and let God. And um, I was really blessed by your testimony, sister. Like, I was really blessed by it. They say stuff like, uh, oh, our, our fellowship was awesome last night. Like, really? Your fellow, you mean you hung out? Like, just say hung out. Be normal. <sighs> These people, they, they have a great time with their homogeneous group of friends who share the same worldview. They like the same bands. They go to the same small group. But they have hardly any interaction with people who are different from them. And that's mostly because they don't know how to love someone who's different than them. They don't know what it looks like to befriend a homosexual. They don't know what it looks like to help a struggling single mother through her poor life choices. So they just stick with what's familiar. Look, and the, the issue with Christian hermits is that they talk about how awesome the gospel is. But they really don't believe it's awesome. They don't really understand how awesome it is. Because... Because if they did, they would do something about it. They don't understand how awesome it was for Jesus to pursue us and to come after us when we were the social outcasts, when we were the rejects. Deep down, the Christian hermit doesn't believe the gospel is awesome enough to share this good news with others who need to hear it. So the Christian hermit, they fail at displaying God's awesomeness because they aren't sharing the good news. So these are our five diagnostic questions. Is it, is it permissible? Is it beneficial? Is it loving? Is it, uh, well, it's hard. It's hard to keep track of these questions. Like seriously, <laughs> it's a lot of work, but, and if it weren't difficult enough to correctly remember all of these questions, Paul makes things even harder by saying something in in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Become perfect. Five questions are hard to keep. But then Paul slams it and says, be perfect. That's tough. Man, I can hardly get past question number three most of the time. But be perfect. That's That's impossible. And to fulfill these five questions, guys, to fulfill these five questions and to live the perfect life, this would lead to eternally, to an eternally awesome life. Like things would be great. But there's a big problem that I'm sure you're all thinking of right now is, is that there's no way, there's no way I can do this. It sounds impossible to, to consider these questions every time I do something in life. Like, how can a person live his life and constantly be thinking of these five questions? It would, it's like you got to, you do something and say, okay, got to take a time out, process five questions, boom, 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 boom. You can't do that. You, like, it'd be like walking around with a clipboard, checklist, like, did I do something permissible? Check. Did I do something beneficial? Check. It's, it's so tough. You can't do it. You can't, you couldn't live life and, and constantly be thinking about keeping all these questions, let alone Trying to be perfect like Jesus is perfect. This is where the good news of the gospel is so awesome. 
This is where it is so radical. It's so different than any other religion. God knew. God knew. Before the foundations of the earth. Before he created us. That we couldn't live our lives perfectly. In line with those five questions. He knew we couldn't do it. So he sent someone who could. He sent Jesus. His one and only son. And Jesus perfectly put God's awesomeness on display every second of his life. Every moment of his life, Jesus met those five criteria. Jesus was perfect. Jesus perfectly displayed the awesomeness of God. Even when he was sad, even when things were going tough, even when his friends were betraying him, Jesus displayed the awesomeness of God. And then the ultimate act, and the ultimate act of displaying God's awesomeness, Jesus was led up a hill, where he would be hung on the cross to take our punishment for all the times that we failed to display God's awesomeness. And the punishment that Jesus took is the punishment that we deserve for rebelling against God's design. That's the punishment that we deserve for failing to display God's awesomeness all the time. Look, and we didn't earn this pardon. We didn't, we didn't earn it. This was a gift from God. We didn't pass a few questions and then Jesus, or, and then God felt bad, so he, he created a, a grading curve so that we could pass. God didn't look at, you know, and say like, wow, he's really good at passing question number three. I think I'll, you know, that one moment really redeems him. I think I'll, I think, you know, I think he's good. It didn't, it didn't work like that. We didn't earn it. We didn't, we didn't work for it. This is all done for us by sheer grace. And so now, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, when God looks at the believer, he doesn't see their failed attempts at being awesome. He doesn't see the places where they came short. He doesn't see their failures and all the time that they rebelled against his design. God sees the righteous blood of Christ covering them. God sees the awesomeness of Christ. God's And God's awesomeness is displayed in Christ by the gracious and merciful work of saving sinners. Saving undeserving people. By defeating sin and redeeming undeserving people, God's awesomeness is displayed in Christ. And this incredible display of God's awesomeness, to experience that awesomeness, is meant to change us. It causes us to turn from our sin, to repent of our sin, and turn to Christ and his awesomeness. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says that beholding the glory of the Lord, that we Christians are transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is how we go back to our original design. This is how we go back to our original purpose. This is how we find joy. Jesus is a solution to the problem. Not, not that we could keep these five questions. Not that we could be perfect. But Jesus was perfect. He was the solution to our problem. And as we cherish Jesus. As we meditate on the gospel. As we bask in grace. As we set our mind on Christ. Our ability to display God's awesomeness. Will increase. That's the only way that we can return to our, our, nat- our, our original purpose of displaying God's awesomeness. It's to point to Christ. 
And so that's what Paul's doing. When he's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ, he's not saying, you know, just be good enough. Just, just try a little bit harder. Try to check off some more questions on that list. He's saying, guys, look at Jesus. Look to him. He was the perfect one. He lived the perfect life. He could check all the questions off his list. And Jesus, he's our substitute. He's the one that stands in our place. He's the one that credits us with God's awesomeness. And that's my prayer for us today. That we would find our redemption and our joy in Christ. That our awesomeness would be rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we would behold Christ and that we would become imitators of him. Not out of duty, not out of a religious mindset of trying to become uh, good at, at glorifying God's awesomeness. But just by beholding our Savior and being transformed by the work of Christ. That we would give glory to God. That we would display God's awesomeness in all that we do. I'm praying that we do this for the good of our families. That people, people would look at us and see, see us pointing to Jesus. Like, this is our Savior. This is the one who did it. This is the one who we put our faith in. That our families would benefit from that. That our missional communities would benefit from that. That our neighborhoods would benefit from that. That our city would benefit from people who are standing and pointing to Jesus. Look at him. And as we do that, we'll find that we're filling the chief end of man by glorifying God and enjoying him forever. So as we come to the table this morning to eat the Lord's Supper, guys, I want you to, to stand in awe of the awesomeness of the gospel. This is Christ's body and blood broken and shed for you. Like You didn't deserve this meal. You didn't earn this meal. You didn't answer enough questions to come to the table. Jesus did this for you by grace alone. So come in amazement. Guys, behold the glory of the Lord. And come... Come and participate in God's awesomeness. Be participants with Christ. Live life in a way that points back to Jesus. This meal will change us. This meal will change us. Heavenly Father, we... God, you are so glorious. Human words cannot express... Or, or explain how glorious you are. We cannot comprehend your excellence. We cannot comprehend your beauty. We cannot comprehend your wisdom, God. But we know that you are glorious because you say so. And that we see it in the work of Jesus Christ. God, you are glorious. Would you help us as your people to display your awesomeness? Would you help us to be people who don't that aren't self-promoting and saying, look at how awesome I am, but saying, look at how awesome our Savior is. God, will you form, would you make a people like that? Would you change us by beholding the gospel, by cherishing Jesus, by, by setting our minds on things that are above? Would you change us for your purposes? God, so that in all things, we could glorify you. Enjoy you forever. 
Lord, please be with us now. Send your spirit to be with us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Would you use this um, not just as a memory to remind us of what Jesus has done, but to show us that Jesus is here right now, that the, that the awesomeness of the Lord is on display. God, and would you make us participants with Christ? Would you, would you progress us from one degree of glory to, the, to another? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen.